You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. Uh, real privilege to be here. And uh, it's good to be in America's other truly great city. So uh, thanks so much for that. Beta Breakers. Wow. My hotel's right near it, so getting to church was, no joke, the most exciting walk I've ever taken through a city <laughs> in my life, so really good. Uh, I love what God's doing in your city, and, uh, and I love your community. Uh, Dave's become a good friend of mine, and just so thrilled at all, all God's doing in you. Whoever thought that this would be happening in a middle school in San Francisco? that this many people would gather uh, to, to figure out what it means to be the people of God in a place like this. So I consider it a real, a real honor to be with you this morning. And uh, I, I asked them, what, what are you guys preaching through? You're preaching through 1 Corinthians? Great, I hope you're at the part on spiritual gifts. No, we're at the part on sex and singleness. Okay, great. What, 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 if I was to teach, you know, like, where are you guys at? Oh, we've got the thing on marriage and divorce. So that's what I've got a uh, challenge to talk to you about this morning, the role of marriage and divorce as a guest teacher. So I, I want to just say a, a couple of things here. Um, whenever it comes to the issue, whenever you talk about marriage, you, we're, there's probably so many different opinions here. And uh, there's probably people who, who've been divorced here. And bringing up marriage is bringing up painful parts of your, your story and your past. Uh, there's probably people who are disproportionately lonely here who are like, please don't rub in my face again uh, the loneliness of my heart. And there's different views on this. We live at such an interesting time uh, in the history of the world to be thinking and wrestling through marriage. So uh, I, I've been married 14 years to an incredible woman. Uh, she's incredible because she's stuck around, if nothing else. Uh, but all that to say, um, I just, I, I just want to try and share this passage with you. I just want to try and bring some clarity on this really confusing topic. And uh, so if you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 10 through 16. If you don't have one, I think they hand them out, or if not, uh, it's going to be up on the screen. But this is the passage that we're going to be spending our time in this morning. And this is what it says, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is God's word. Let's just pray before we have a look at this passage together. Father God, uh, we come before you as your covenant people today. We just humble ourselves. Uh, we ask for this on Pentecost Sunday, that you will send your Holy Spirit to us. Uh, we need his comfort. We need his help. 
You said that you would send uh, him so that we wouldn't be orphans, that we'd have a family to belong to. You said that you'd send him, that you'd teach us truth, and that he'd come alongside us and help us to live with power as witnesses of your truth. So come, Holy Spirit, and, and may your voice be heard above all the other voices here today. And we offer you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm not sure if you, uh, when you looked at this passage, when you start hearing words like sanctification, unclean children, separation, and all the rest of it, it, it can be really confusing. So I've put up on here, if we can go to the next slide, just as what this passage says really, Christ, really uh, quickly. This is for Christians. This is not a morality we're trying to impose on the world. But for Christians, this is the, the guts of the passage. Don't get divorced except for adultery. This is not an opinion. This is a command of Jesus. If you do, reconcile or stay single. If you come to Christ after you're married and your spouse doesn't believe, don't divorce. Seek to influence your spouse and kids towards Jesus. If the unbelieving spouse abandons you, you're free to remarry another believer. So that's it. It's been wonderful. Thank I mean, <laughs> So that's it. It's actually, you hear all these words, but actually the passage is it's, it's quite clear. Now, if it's that clear, why is it so hard to live this out? Why is it so hard to live this out? And I want to submit to you it's because Trying to live this sort of stuff out is so challenging. I haven't been a Christian my entire life. I became a Christian and trying to make sense of my sexuality before I was a believer and then what to do with it after I became a follower of Jesus was quite a challenge. And so when you talk about the, when you talk about the role of marriage today, we have to try and figure out how we bring all of our expectations about our pre-Christian sexuality and bring them under the Lordship of Jesus and hash it out. And this is what the challenge that the Corinthians had. The Corinthians were, in no joke, and I'm not trying to be cute or overemphasize, in many, many ways, a city very similar to San Francisco, known for its flagrant sexuality, its cultural diversity, in many ways, its hedonism and its innovation in hedonism. And it was a place, there was even a phrase to Corinthianize, where you would, it was, there was a phrase connected to that about the sort of lifestyles and stereotypes that were connected with the city of Corinth. And so when you had people being converted to follow Jesus out of that sort of background and then try to figure out what does it mean to say Jesus is Lord over my life now, it was a mess. And not only that, but the, the role of sexuality and marriage in the Roman Empire was really, really strained. Rome had seen a massive decline that was influencing them as an empire. And so Caesar Augustus had instituted a vision for renewal in the Roman uh, Empire in the Pax Romana. He instituted fines for single people the longer they were single and penalties for people who would divorce. Now, what's interesting is that Caesar Augustus had stolen his wife from another man that she had divorced. So Christians aren't the only hypocrites, which is comforting uh, whenever we talk about issues of marriage. But all that to say, they were trying to make sense of it. Now, I want to put forth that we are living at a time when it comes to trying to figure out this passage that's so hard for us. I've got a couple of examples here. If we can go through these, this is, I'm sure you saw this, how could you not have seen the Time magazine cover about marriage? And so there, I've, got, I've got no judgment value associations connected to these images, but I just want you to, to ask yourself, where were you when you saw these images? What happened in your heart? What do you think? What does this mean for marriage? Next slide here. This is from another, this is from Time magazine, another issue about the rise of uh, polygamy. I do, I do, I do, I do. And so you look at this and you go, I don't know what happens in your minds when you think this. But this is, we're trying to figure out what is marriage. Next slide here. I saw this one when I was taking my son to get a haircut. Uh, this is just about the rise of polyamory, which is, is group marriage. Just saying they estimate 500,000 polyamorous relationships in the United States. What do we do here? Next slide here. 
this one here, Ashley Madison, which is a, an organization that's designed to help facilitate adulterous affairs. Or it's actually, that's, they would never say that. Next slide. This is from the cover of actually of Bloomberg magazine. But this is actually helping facilitate relationships outside of marriage relationships. What do you do with something like this? Next slide here. Uh, I just helped mediate my first gay divorce. A gay couple who are friends of mine who got divorced. I sat in the middle of it and watched their relationship fall apart. Just trying to process what is marriage. Next slide here. And how about these couple of crazy young kids? <laughs> so that haircut that I'm sporting was big in the late 90s, I promise. But my wife hardly looks a day older. If you were to see her today, it's really amazing. She was 20 there. She was 20. I was 22. And so we've been married almost 15 years. And just for, to to ask the question, and literally I look at this passage and everybody said to us, you're too young, you're just kids, you don't know who you are. And I look back now and I go, what were we thinking? We were too young, we are just kids, we don't know who we are. <laughs> Marriage can be such a confusing reality and so in some sense there's a crisis. So I just want to ask one question. What is marriage? There's a massive conversation in our culture about who gets to participate in the institution, but what is it? What's your definition of marriage? If someone's to ask you, what's marriage? And the problem that we live in, in the times that we have, just for followers of Jesus, is that we don't even really have an idea of what marriage is, period, let alone what our culture says about it. So I want to contrast what, basically, I believe our culture has come to put forth as the idea of marriage, and then I want to contrast it with what the Scriptures would, would indicate is a Christian marriage, and then we'll try and develop some implications out of this, okay? So... Marriage in our culture, for the most part, is designed just as a contract between people. And it's under the sovereignty of self, which means uh, we're self-defining and we're entitled to whatever we want. It's not under the sovereignty of God. It's under the sovereignty of self. And uh, one writer put it like this, the earlier ideal of marriage as a permanent contracted union designed for the sake of mutual love, procreation and protection is slowly giving way to a new reality of marriage as a terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of the individual parties. And so in essence, for the time being, next slide, we would say that marriage is a person and a person in the state. That's what we would try and argue that marriage is. And so the, the, the descriptors of what marriage as a contract looks like, I would put forth are as follows. Marriage is defined primarily as an emotional attachment to another person. So you meet somebody, and this is not a small thing to emotionally attach yourself to somebody. So I'm not saying these with a the sense of condescension at all, perhaps as a detached cultural observer. But marriage is an emotional attachment. So you meet somebody and you fall in love and then you, you try and grind out that eros for as long as you can. But when it's over, you get, well, the marriage has kind of died. And so marriage is, is as long and as lasting as an emotional attachment. Next uh, stage here, it's secular salvation for many people. You take God out of the picture, you don't get rid of the longings that you have for transcendence and wonder and eternity and unconditional love. You just reroute them and you reroute them to the closest thing to God, which is people made in His image. And so we take all of these, these longings for eternity and all of life and we place them over another person. We smother an infinite person with eternal expectations. But for some sense, the highest value, the, the moment, the telos toward which all of human history for a person's life is moving is towards finding the love partner who in some sense can complete us. And then you have for other people, it's about personal fulfillment. It's like when I get married to somebody, I, I, I want to be fulfilled. 
and I want you to fill me. There's a sense of emptiness that I have. And then when we marry, you're going to pour whatever you got into me and then I'll be filled up as a human being. In many ways, it's about consumption. So it means, what can I get out of this? And I will, I will be in this marriage as long as it's bearing the kind of fruit that I want. But the second that I can't get anything out of this, well, then I need to look for somebody else. Uh, in many ways, it's about rights. You're my spouse now, so I have the right to. Now, now listen, you never say that. You never say, well, you're my spouse, I've got the right. But we all feel these. We have these expectations underneath us that we're married now, therefore fell in the blank. And then lastly, it's probably our culture's number one place where we would seek to find happiness. To seek to find happiness. That we just go, man, if I could just find that person uh, emotionally available but not needy, you know, incredibly, incredibly attractive but doesn't care if I let myself go, you know, <laughs> makes heaps of money but doesn't work a lot so that they can take me out, you know, like, just like, who's going to make me, who's going to make me happy? From the book, The Meaning of Marriage, the meaning of life has come to be seen as the fruit of the freedom of the individual to choose the life that most fulfills him or her personally. Instead of finding meaning through self-denial, through giving up one's freedoms and binding oneself to the desires of marriage and family, marriage was redefined as finding emotional and sex, sexual fulfillment and actualization. And here's the thing, if we were to just look as, at the United States as a country, we would go, not from any particular group, but just as a whole, that vision of marriage hasn't really worked, has it? It just hasn't worked. To frame up marriage with all of us as just as a contract that we basically use for self-fulfillment, it hasn't worked. Almost half of all marriages still end in divorce today. And we can joke about divorce, we've trivialized divorce, but if you've been through divorce, you know the absolute gut-wrenching heartache to deal with that, where it's not a laughing matter. But we know intuitively there's something profound, something sacred about this, and the way that we're treating it hasn't worked. And so our job then as followers of Jesus is to say, if that's just sort of the state that the world is in right now, how do we drag, because we, many Christians, you're not immune from, we can't self-righteously go, well, I don't view marriage like that. That's just how marriage is viewed in our society. So how do we who have those same expectations begin to shed some of those things and move towards the freedom and the truth and the beauty of what Jesus teaches about actually this? So what makes a Christian marriage? And I would say that for us, marriage is not a contract, but marriage is a covenant and it's under the sovereignty of Jesus. So in essence, we would say from this passage that marriage is a man and a woman in Christ and that marriage is a sacrament. Uh, again, this is Keller. Listen to what he says. He says, God established marriage for the welfare and happiness of humankind. Marriage didn't evolve in the late Bronze Age as a way to determine property rights. At the climax of the Genesis account of creation, we see God bringing a woman and a man together to unite them in marriage. The Bible begins with the wedding of Adam and Eve and ends in the book of Revelation with the wedding of Christ and the church. Marriage is God's idea. It's certainly also a human institution and it reflects the character of the particular human culture in which it's embedded. But the concept and roots of human marriage are in God's own action and therefore what the Bible says about God's design for marriage is crucial. And I just want to give you a reminder here, if you're a follower of Jesus today, that what makes a Christian marriage different than any other marriage is that Christ is in it. Christ is in it. There is a there is a conscientious acknowledgement and submission to a third party in the union, which is to Jesus himself. 
And so we want to learn if, if this is something that is literally woven into the, the grain of the universe, that God has put this in there so that we can flourish, that we should listen to some of His thoughts about this, that we may find the life that He intends for it. So what does marriage look like as a covenant? Mar- marriage is a covenant. Well, firstly, it's about whole life union. It's not trying to isolate, and I listened to the previous talks in this series just to catch up so there wasn't too much repeat, but one of the quotes that Dave used on C.S. Lewis where he talked about um, trying to isolate sex from union. So you just like trying to isolate the taste of food from, you know, so you, you chew something and spit it out because you just wanted the taste. And I want to tell you this, that marriage is not just trying to isolate sexuality or finances or status out of a person so that you can use it. It's about uniting yourself in a union with them. If you've ever been in a relationship and you've been used sexually and you feel like they used me and then they just spat you out because they were done with you, you know as much as anything that we actually long for something more than that. We long for a whole life union where we can be vulnerable and naked, not just uh, with our bodies, but with our hearts, with our emotions, with our thoughts, with our dreams and our desires. And so it's about a whole life union. Number two, it's a picture of salvation rather than salvation. And uh, it's, it's designed to point to the wonder, the bigger picture written large across the universe that there is a creator God who in his passion for us loved us and came for us. Whenever I, I think about this idea, I think about Kierkegaard's classic story of the maiden. And Kierkegaard tells this story. It's a story about uh, a, a king who fell in love with a beautiful peasant. And then he thought, how can I win her heart? I'm not complete. Even though he was the king and he had everything at his disposal, power, privilege, wealth, resources, acclaim, his heart was empty because he fell for this particular woman. And so he said, well, how can I win her heart? If I show up as the king, how will I ever know if she really loves me because she'll be coerced by my power and who's going to say no to a king? Or maybe she'll just use me for my position and think, sweet, the Cinderella thing's actually possible for me and then head off uh, into the palace. And so he did the unthinkable. He dressed himself as a peasant, moved into the village and then won her heart and married her. And only after he'd won her heart for who she was and who he was did he reveal that he was the king. In some sense, this is the story of Jesus that... God hasn't come in a power play to overwhelm us with morality. But in humility, even though he's the God of the universe and he has everything at his disposal, lacks nothing, still in his heart desired intimacy with us. And so he humbled himself and entered into the human story to look us in the face, not as a powerful God, but as a vulnerable person, to say, I love you and I want you. And that I want to bring you into my family. I want to bring you into union with me. Now, every marriage is telling that story that we can humble ourselves and see the humanity of somebody and not see them as a commodity, but to enter in and to win their hearts for who they are. It's a picture of salvation. It's about fulfilling the other. So we enter into a marriage not to say, what can I get from this? Though you will get things from it. But to say, how do I give myself away like Christ did for the church on behalf of the other? It's a covenant, which means that regardless of how you feel about it at any given moment or regardless how good it's going or how poorly it's going, you say these vows, like when, you know, when we have a wedding, I always advocate for the traditional vows or some slight modification of them because you say, we're gathered here today in the presence of God and these many witnesses. And then you have that beautiful phrase that says, what God has joined together, let no person tear asunder or pull apart. And so it's a beautiful thing. See, the problem, and so I get a lot of time, I and mean, I, I pastor a church in New York City, and uh, in different neighborhoods, we have different kinds of congregations, but... 70% of our people are in their 20s and singles. So you can, you know, very, very similar dynamic to you guys. And I get the single the time. Marriage is a piece of paper, mate. You don't need that. Normally said by a man trying to exploit a woman sexually, I would just add as an observation. 
got everything he needs from the relationship except the commitment, you know, but the challenge, that wasn't judgment, that was observation. But, uh, but I'll say this, I'll say this. The beauty of being able to, to truly be yourself with somebody and know that they're not always keeping the door cracked open for another option. That at the end of the day, you go, listen, if we're not going to get divorced here, well, let's channel our energy back towards one another and let's make this thing work. Such a beautiful, thrilling thing. If, if you're not in a marriage, if you have all the benefits of marriage without the covenant of marriage, often you have to do a lot of self-promotion. You continually have to market yourself to the other person to keep them interested. And that's good at first, but that's exhausting over the long haul because at some point our bodies age and we come to the grips that we're not as exceptional and special as we thought, that we're more mediocre and average because we're just people after all and we will age. And so we actually have to find somebody who says, look, I'm, it's a promise that whatever happens, like I'm with you in this, that we're going to walk through this together. It's a covenant. It's about responsibility rather than rights. And lastly, it's about holiness, not just happiness. And uh, I, I heard someone say this once, and I, I think it's true. If you want to serve God, be single. But if you want to become like God, get married. Because you know what marriage does? There's a person that is a mirror of your selfishness in front of you at all times. And, you know, before I got married, I had no idea what a self-righteous, arrogant jerk I was until I got married. Because then this beautiful, petite, exquisite woman in front of me who actually loved me was like, listen, I love you, and I'm in this, but you are a self-righteous, arrogant jerk. I just want, let's have a DTR here. This is who you are in this thing. And it was actually really, really challenging and, and, you know, you spend the whole life going, it's her fault, it's her fault. And if anybody's ever been to counseling for marriage counseling, you realize very, very quickly, it's my fault. I'm what's wrong with this marriage as much as any other component on it. And so it's, it's a great tool where God uses to form us. And God's end game is that we be, become conformed to the image of his son and there's nothing better than having somebody who really knows you. My wife's not impressed with me. You know, I say, oh, I'm going to speak at Reality San Francisco, one of the fastest growing churches in, in the history of this. And she's like, just bring me back some coffee, all right? I mean, she's not impressed, at, not impressed at all by who I am. She wants to know if I'm a good father, if I'm emotionally available to her. And, I, and it's so funny. I got a, you, you want to know where marriage is at? 14 years, I'm getting a little personal here. I got a text this morning from my wife that just said, thank you for doing the dishes before you left my love. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, 14 years in, we got kids, we've been all over the world, and the thing that matters at the end of the day is that in the small things, you still serve one another. That's, that's so much of what it is. And so the, the Bible has there's so much potential, so much power in this idea that God has put together for people to flourish and find the love that we crave. He's designed it that we may live into it, and it's, a, it's beautiful. And that's why he said, Christians aren't freaked out about marriage. Christians want to value it. We want to cherish it. We want to live into what God has for it. And we want to see it become a sacrament again, something that is sacred and beautiful and compelling in the midst of a culture where there's been so much brokenness connected to it. And so that's why I think out of nothing else that God says, listen, you must not separate. When you get married, there's no fault of divorce in the Roman Empire. There's no fault of divorce in our culture. And he goes, listen, Stay together. You must not separate. So this is what the passage says. To the married I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. If she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. 
And so what God's intent with, and it's actually a really remarkable thing, you see it in Genesis 2.24, two defining characteristics, that you would leave and cleave, and that there would be a sense that we come together, and that we would be one flesh. And so he says, it's a tragedy after that you have forsaken all others and entered into a high life, whole life union, that somebody should undo these two new realities of marriage. One that you would desert and abandon when you've already left everything else for this person. And that you would take your one flesh with this person and you would begin to distribute that out to other people. So he says, this is something that we should value. So we, we as followers of Jesus have to really get our hearts around why this is worth valuing and cherishing and investing in for each of us. Why does this matter? Just a couple of thoughts. Firstly, marriage matters because every Christian marriage preaches the gospel to the world. Every Christian marriage preaches the gospel to the world. So people always are looking at other people who are married. You know, you can tell a lot about a person when you meet their spouse. How often have you met somebody like, oh, she's nothing like I thought. He was nothing like a, what I, I mean, you could tell a lot about them. Everybody's observing marriage, marriage dynamics, the way we treat one another, all of the nuances of our relationships, and they're preaching some sort of message. And we as followers of Jesus, together united under him, are trying to preach a message about God's love for us. Again, it says this, to be loved but known is comforting but superficial. To be, to be loved but unknown is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is well a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. And here's the thing that we have to realize uh, as followers of Jesus. The central metaphor of the people of God in the Scriptures is covenant marriage, of God's relationship with His people. The children of Israel, when they're being liberated out of Egypt, God doesn't just invite them out of Egypt to be his people. God proposes to them the four vows that a young Hebrew male would say on his wedding day are the four phrases that God invites the children of Israel out of Egypt to come and be his covenant people. And if you look at all the metaphors that describe what the, the Bible talks about our relationship, you will see that they climax in marriage for what God has for us. For example, Calvinists like to, to point out that our relationship with God is that we are, we are clay, that He's the potter and we are clay, and that's true. Other people like to emphasize the idea of being sheep, that God's the shepherd and we're sheep, but at least we're in the realm of the living as opposed to just clay now. Uh, some people like to talk about how we're God's servants, and other people like to talk about how we're God's children. But you'll see that there's an intensity of intimacy that increases through the biblical metaphor of the Scriptures where it ends, where we are one flesh with God, we are His people. And heaven is pictured as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so God doesn't view marriage and covenant relationships as a secondary issue. He views them as central in everything that's going on. And so He has committed to us unconditionally. God has made vows to you that he will never break. Romans 8, the end of Romans 8, all those beautiful passages, neither death nor life, angels, demons, principalities, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's God saying, I do when I'm in it for the long haul. That is God saying, I, I am with you always. And so what he wants from his people is for us to reflect that to the world. His unconditional commitment to us is what we demonstrate to one another and that preaches a message to the world. Secondly, uh, we will never reach maturity without keeping our sacred commitments. You know, that, that we, we live in a culture of such extended adolescence. It is breathtaking when you get outside of it and enter back into it. And so how, how to, you know, and, and I'm not talking about Christians who are observing this. Everybody's observing this. I don't know if you saw uh, 
uh, that TED talk called The Demise of Guys. But that on its own is just worth the, the best five minutes that you'll spend this year on any TED talk. I mean, just remarkable. People are just going, where, where do we get people who can keep their commitments? One author from the book Words of Fire says this, and I, th- I think there's so much truth to this. Adultery begins a breakdown of order that threatens the entire society for how can we trust each other if we cannot trust each other in our most intimate commitments? If we cannot maintain trust and fidelity within the small and inherently meaningful universe of marriage, how can we trust each other in commerce, in politics, in business, in culture, in life? A culture that embraces adultery accepts within itself a poison pill for every other relationship, a toxic substance that threatens every other commitment. And isn't that really that we, we, we look at our world today and we have a crisis of integrity? And so much of that happens because we have a crisis of integrity in the heart. That if you're willing to cheat on the person that you've made vows before God with, what, where else are you willing to cheat to get ahead? And so this is something that forges us and helps us become mature people who actually benefit our world again. Another thought, real love, the kind that we crave and actually ache for, comes through time and sacrifice, not through quick sex and superficiality. And uh, I read the book The Road, Kerouac, in my preparation to come to San Francisco last time I came. And that got me addicted to the beats, and then I read all the beat stuff. And, and uh, one of the things that was so fascinating about that particular view um, is that people say, you, you know, when Kerouac wrote The Road, he just sat down and in a moment of artistic glory just banged the thing out in the giant scroll. And then something fundamental happened in the consciousness of Americans where we began to value the overnight success. Isn't San Francisco the place where everybody, seriously, I, I, you guys have the best coffee in the world, okay? You win, okay? We get it, right? But uh, whenever you go to a coffee shop, you find all these people, and, and half of the people are trying to come up with the next instant hit app. Half the people are like, I'm working on the next thing, and here's what I want. I want to get, I'm 19, but I want to get some funding, and then I want to get into an accelerator group, and I want to blow it out to a couple million users, and then I want to be bought for 500 mil from one of the big boys. And then I want, at age 22, I want to do whatever I want for the rest of my life. I mean, this, this in some sense, and I know it's a bit of a stereotype, forgive the clumsiness of the metaphor, but there is something in that that's woven themselves into our society. And I, I just want to say this, masterpieces don't happen instantly. And the kind of love that we crave, so often we give up on it right at the point when the thing that we actually need is found by going through it. And I can tell you this, I mean, I've been married a long time for a guy my age, but I'm going to tell you, and, and let me tell you, I have had some horrific, two in particular, horrific years with my wife. I've had the notebook when we met, and I had Blue Valentine at a way that made that film look G-rated. And uh, I, I had, one, I had one, one just all-time low when I was looking at my wife, and I was like, I think I hate you. Not in a funny sense, that was inappropriate to laugh, but in a literal, I, and then you laugh more, so there's that. But It got so bad with my wife that she would just say, just get out, I loathe you. And then to just say, well, what do we do with that? Well, I can tell you this in all honesty, if it wasn't for the fact that I, I was committed to a covenant, I would have just bailed. So there's someone more compatible. I got married too young. I wasn't my true self. My other half is out there somewhere. And all of these things spoken in my mind. But I can tell you this now. 
I look at my wife right now and the, depth, the bandwidth of what we have is irredeemable. It's, it's just you can't replace it. And there's no hot sex with some other girl in New York. There's not some other person out there that values me and sees me for who I really am. Out there that can compete or hold a candle to the beauty of what I've got with my wife right now. And it's been bloody and it's been painful and there's been some horrific stuff in there. But there's also been glory and transcendence and acceptance and intimacy. My whole point is, I'm so deep into this thing that I couldn't bail now if I wanted to because it's so rich. And we look back on it, we kind of just go, whew, there's some years missing from the photo albums, I can tell you that. (laughs) There's no photos from 2007 when you were planning your church. Yeah, just we, it's really hard to get us in a room and to touch one another. But 2008 was pretty good. You know, I mean, it's kind of like that. But it takes time. Lastly, another one. Divorce is, uh, divorce is destroying our culture and it's not renewing it. In essence, for a culture to thrive, this is not Christian thought, this is sociological thought, what's required is to bring order out of chaos, that human beings don't thrive in chaos, that determine boundaries and limits that people can be as free as they want within them. That's what enables human flourishing. And what God does is he takes all the craziness of our longings and our sexuality and our hunger and our ambition and our desires and he takes all of this and then he channels it towards another person. And he puts them together so that they can together become more than the sum of their parts. That their their marriage is in essence a little vehicle of cultural renewal and mission sent into the world. But what divorce does is it's a part of anti-culture, which is it's creating chaos out of order. And it fails us off as individuals to go and chase our own passions and tendencies and hungers and desires. And that's not what we want. Philip Yancey says this in Rooms of Another World, God intended marriage to be a sign of the kind of love relationship he wants with us. Uh, Jackie Alolf said, when I witness the end of a marriage because one of the spouses is gripped by passion for someone else, I am as sad as at the death of a child. A planted flag of the kingdom from another world has fallen to the ground. And I, I know that there's, there's probably people here and you've experienced this and you're a follower of Jesus and it's just gone south. And there's just like a place of pain in your soul. And I, I'm sorry about that. There's no, there's no easy solution. There's not one filling with the Holy Spirit and that thing's done and you move on. That has to be walked through. But we do need to sit down as we have the chance to live our lives in human history and say, this does matter. And Jesus has got wisdom to speak to this. And I'm not here to tell the world how to be the world, but I, as a follower of Jesus, I, I, want, to, I want to value, I want to cherish. I want to see marriage become a sacrament, something that's sacred and holy within my own life. And I think our culture is haunted by this. I don't know if you saw the film, This is 40. There's absolutely no reason why you should have seen that. If you were single, you probably would have been bored. And there's actually no reason to see it with your spouse because it's really kind of awkward too. So what am I doing as a single man, in a, uh, as a man with a bunch of people in the theater? I don't know, I saw This is 40, that's my point. And uh, it's actually a really hopeful film. Really hopeful film. The, the film Juno comes out a little while back. And what is it? It's just like the, it's the rallying cry out of despair from our culture going, come on, let's have another go. There's something to this. And we as followers of Jesus, we want to champion that. Okay, so that's the first part there. God, marriage matters and God wants us to, to be involved covenantally. Now, there's two quick nuggets here at the end. Uh, here's one. What do you do then um, if you're married and then one of you becomes a follower of Jesus? Which that's not a small thing. That's not like, oh, I believe in God now. It's like I have a new covenant heart that longs for the kingdom of God. 
and in many ways we're spiritually incompatible. This is what Paul says. To the rest, I, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it were, they were holy. Now, in the previous passages in 1 Corinthians, you've heard the teachings that exist, and the teachings basically say, hey, listen, don't take your body, which is a member of Christ, and unite it with that which is unholy. And so I think the Christians are thinking, well, gee, well, I'm married to someone who's not a part of the, the family of God, and now I'm having sex with them. And so now am I dishonoring God by me being a holy part of the family of God, now uniting myself with this unbelieving person? Oh, I better get rid of him. And he said, no, 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 not so fast. That there's something powerful that can happen. And, and I think this is where I'm getting the idea. In Ezra chapter 10, they had a problem because God had told the children of Israel, listen, I don't want you marrying with the pagan nations. They've got different gods, different culture, different values, different vision. They'll drag your heart away from my heart. And there's this passage in Ezra 10 where it says, um, then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you've been unfaithful, you've married foreign, foreign wives, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people around you and from your foreign wives. And so I think they're kind of like, oh, look, look what they did in the Old Testament, that we need to do this too. But there's a radical thought here. You see this modeled in the ministry of Jesus, and you see this following along the pathway here. And here's the thought. The Pharisees were concerned that the world would contaminate the people of God. But how Jesus was different was that he actually believed that the people of God would influence and bless the world. And so Jesus was not concerned that by touching sin, he would become sinful. He believed that by touching sin, people would become holy. And this is the principle that he's saying in marriage here. If you're married to someone, do not give up on the possibilities of spiritual influence that you can have towards those who don't know Jesus. Now, I want to say this here if you're married to someone who's not a Christian. I can imagine... All the stereotypes out there about what Christians are like, and then a husband gets the good news that his wife has become a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, and then they have this really awkward conversation, right? They sit down, and she's like, hey, uh, you know, I went forward down the front at church or whatever, and I'm a Christian now. And in his mind, he's thinking, oh, fantastic, bad sex, and I'm going to live with a Pharisee. How amazing. I'm so glad for you. That's probably in his mind what he's thinking. You become a Christian now? Oh, Great. And so this doesn't mean that, if you, that the influence happens because you start leaving little Bible verses when he's shaving. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> this doesn't mean that we power up and begin to challenge all the convictions and sinful tendencies and wrong worldview and wickedness and you start nagging. No, 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 no. Jesus was a servant. Jesus was humble. And if you're married to somebody who's not a Christian, in all honesty, I think that the, the result should be, I'm so glad you've become a Christian because you're so much more giving in your sexuality. You're so much more of a servant to me now. I can't believe the kind of thoughtfulness and kindness. Thank you for your patience. What's happened to you? It's like there's an angel in my house. It's like Jesus has moved in. There's something happened now. And so the influence should not be a self-righteous moralism and condescension, but it should be a humility that comes alongside to serve and to love. There's incredible possibilities there. And so if you're in that situation, don't just be going, oh, I just wish they'd act like a Christian. They're not. And you'd be amazed that they're saying, well, if you're a Christian, I, I wish you'd act like one. So we're called to serve. We're called to come underneath. We're called to be humble. We're called to mutual submission, and that can be hard. But if you would do that, there's so many stories of how people have literally said, if that's what Christianity is, what is that? I want that. So if you, that's about influencing people if you find yourself in a spiritually incompatible 
marriage. And then this, this last issue is about the idea of restoration and brokenness in marriage. Paul says, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. So someone says, you're a Christian, I can't stand that stuff, I'm out of here. So the brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Now, I, I, I've, I'm sure there's people in this room and I have friends for whom uh, this has happened. They've just been abandoned. And that's got to rock you. That's got to rock you. There's got to be some deep wound in your heart that says, I guess I don't have what it takes. Or what was so wrong with me that that didn't work? And there's really, there's no, there's no easy way f- through this except to say that in a community like this, th- there's a way forward through this. And there's a difference between a scar and a wound. A wound is still painful, but a scar is a wound, but flesh has filled in the gap. Your life has grown on top of it, and so you can touch it and the pain's gone. And we just live in a world and we just live in a, in a society where many of us are going to walk around with wounds, but God's heart is that they'll be transformed into scars. And scars, if used properly, can bring great redemption. They can bring real hope to people. They can tell an alternative story than the one that our culture is fating us to be a part of. And so we as the church, whenever this happens with people, we need to not immediately judge and go, I wonder what happened. We need to step in and just go, man, I'm so sorry. We need to rally around. We literally need to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Those people need to go, I'm so thankful I'm a part of a church because when the believers come around me, it's like being a part. It's like feeling Jesus love me through these people. And so if that's you today, I just want to say, I'm sorry that that's happened to you. Stay the course. Plug into the people of God and that trust over the course of time God can bring something beautiful out of this. Okay, just have a couple of minutes left here. I want to try and make this practical if I can. Try and make this super practical, okay? The first implication, I think, that's connected to this is this. We have to, because we live in a culture that idealizes marriage and its potential, we have to get realistic expectations about what marriage is like. We have to break our addiction to finding somebody who is spectacular. Because I don't know how to tell you this, you're probably not spectacular. You're probably not. Like, you're great and all that, but you're probably not spectacular. Everything in our culture says life has to be spectacular. Porn says that sex has to be spectacular. Hollywood says that romance has to be intoxicating. And yet, when you drag those realities with another person who's just a person and you into a room, all of a sudden you confront reality pretty quickly. We have to come to terms as followers of Jesus is the only person who can ever truly fulfill us and meet his unconditional covenantal vows is the person of Jesus. The only person who can do that for us. Now, there's a Japanese concept that's transformed my marriage called wabi-sabi. Anyone familiar with it? Said with Australian accent, wabi-sabi. I can't do an American accent, but it's a concept of, view, it's a concept of viewing beauty differently. And it basically says, so for example, when my wife got pregnant, she got stretched. And my wife, beautiful, beautiful woman, got stretch marks all over her stomach and she was so self-conscious. She was like spending a fortune on cocoa butter. And, and uh, <laughs> because she was worried, I'm never going to look the same again when I go to the beach. You know, she's like, look at, uh, my body's changed forever. And our society says, all oh, stretch marks. But Wabi Sabi says, oh my goodness, in our love, we conceived a child. And that little kid who takes on the traits of you and me grew in your body and was birthed out of your body and has joined our story. And so those stretch marks aren't signs of ugliness, they're signs of beauty. 
When I look at those things, I go, that's a part of our sacred story that our love has produced and is telling into the world. And so your body isn't falling apart. Your body's becoming marked by the beauty of our story. And those sort of views of, of how life works inside of a marriage can be incredibly redemptive. Again, from our rumors of another world, I love this. It says, marriage strips away the illusions about sex pounded into us daily by the media. Few of us live with oversex supermodels. We live instead with ordinary people, men and women who get bad breath, body odor, and unruly hair, who menstruate and experience occasional impotence, occasional pee on the seat, and who have bad moods and embarrass us in public. We pay more attention to our children's needs than our own. We live with people who require compassion, tolerance, understanding, and an endless supply of forgiveness. So do our partners. Such is the ironical power of sex. It lures us into a relationship that offers to teach us what we need far more, sacrificial love. I've just got something that may be helpful here if we can go through this just quickly. Next slide here. Most of us, when it comes to a relationship, go through this cycle. Excitement, disillusionment, adjustment, and health. That's the nature of human relationships. Next slide. Our, what, the problem happens, we get so excited. We get married, we think everything's going to be remarkable and spectacular. And then we just get this illusion that we've married another simple human being doing their best to follow Jesus and be whole. And next slide here. So if we're not careful, we bail on this person. It happens in dating all the time when we get addicted to excitement. But that is a form of immaturity. The love you crave will never be met here in an in a ongoing series of addictive, exciting relationships. Next slide here. What we're actually called to is learn to adjust to the reality of who that person is and who you are now and to work through that through sacrificial love and that's when we'll end up in a level of health and depth of relationships that our world only longs for. Next one here. We need to learn to invite others uh, into our story to strengthen our story. Just, just for a moment, can you just look around the room here? Seriously, just look around for a moment. Look at all these people here. Look at all these people here. Isn't it honestly an insane thing that in a city of San Francisco, there'll be this many people who are all sort of walking in the same direction under the Lordship of Jesus towards the kingdom of God? And how many stories of pain, brokenness, grace, and redemption do you think are present in this room? Hundreds. The people of God are here to support you. And can I just say this? If you are having a problem in your marriage, just, just put your hand up and go, I'm hurting here. I'm hurting. Reality, what do you got for me? Like, I need some help. To, who can, you, can you get us a counselor? Is, is, do you have, is my, can I bring my small group into this? Not in, in, in an appropriate way, but get help. The church is supposed to love one another. Not just show up and hear talks and go to Christian events. We're supposed to love one another. We need to have a vulnerability of heart where we're willing to say, I'm hurting. So see one another as a community of people who can actually bless one another. Be vulnerable. Risk. Don't suck it out on your own and just grind it out and let the thing die. Bring your pain to the gifts of the people of God. Next one here. Use your work skills at home. I've got a brief little marriage exercise that if you're married, this will be worth the whole talk this morning. I'm amazed at how people... In cities like San Francisco are some of the sharpest entrepreneurial pain, price-paying, well-read, articulate, visionary people ever, and they get home in their sloths. All of that wisdom and brilliance and energy is directed at creating something, and they get home, they're like, oh, my marriage is awful. She does. I'm just like, listen, man, bring the entrepreneurship into the home. So here's four quick questions to ask for your marriage. Like, what's wrong with it? Like to assess your own marriage. Get outside of it as a consultant and go, what's wrong with our marriage? What do we need to stop? And then what's good? Let's celebrate what we've got in common. Let's celebrate what we like. Let's cultivate these things. What's confused? We need to, we need to, we need to clarify some of this stuff. And what's missing? We need to create 
and we need to catalyze and bring to bear some of those things. And this is just a good little tool. If you sit with your spouse and you just work this out, I can pray and you just say, let's every three months, let's just get away overnight and just wrestle through these things and bring our stories to bear with another under the Lordship of Jesus and ask this. This will be an incredibly helpful tool. And then two last ones very quickly. Number one, if you're single, I just have one thought for you. There's, I'd like to say a bunch more, but I can't. A lifetime of promiscuity does not prepare you for a lifetime of faithfulness. Like the more chaste you can be, the better you'll be, be able to live into the realities of thriving covenantal marriage. And then my last quote here is this, is that what God wants the people of God to be in any given city is a counterculture for the common good. And, and often conservative Christians can be up in arms about things like marriage equality. But in all honesty, the thing that we are called to worry about and mind our own business in many ways is to worry about the quality of our own marriages. The church's job is not to tell the world how to be the world. The church is supposed to live with such compelling countercultural marriages that the world literally comes and says, what are you doing? Where can I get a marriage like that? And so we need to be able to model, just not model, not preach, not yell, not moralize, not legislate. We need to be able to model a salt and light. We're working this thing out as the people of God with the help of the community under the Lordship of Jesus and by the grace of God, it's becoming a thing of beauty. And so I just close with this. I know that this stuff sounds crazy, doesn't it? To really believe that two people can just can do this and that I, I look at the narrative of our culture, I feel the pulls, I feel the recruiting of my affections and my allegiances by society to say, just do what makes you happy, man. But we have a choice. We're either going to trust the creator who has ordered the universe with a certain sort of grain to it and live into it and find life and thriving as his people. Or we're going to follow the ways of the world. There's no neutrality on the issue of marriage. And so the questions that we have to ask ourselves is this, and I close with this quote. We all have to choose between two ways of being crazy. It's the foolishness of the gospel or the nonsense values of our world. And so my simple prayer is that God will give you grace and that he'll fill your heart with vision, that you'll realize that God is shaping you and forming you and that marriage will be in all of its beauty and all of its brokenness a thing that blesses you with life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for these people here today. Uh, Lord, you know them. You know every person. You know what they've dragged into this room. Uh, you know the pain of their heart. You know the longings of their heart. You know the dreams of their heart. Lord, we just, we just lay it out, literally like little kids who can't figure out all the pieces. We just lay it all out at your feet and we just say, calm and rightly order our hearts and lives. Our Lord, for those marriages here that are just struggling and they're just sucking wind and they're hurting, meet them today, God. And for those who are just, they're loving it, would you just bless them and help them to remember that this is a good gift that comes from you. So Lord, we, we respond now, we bring our pain and our happiness, uh, our lust, our faithfulness, we just bring it all before you and we say continue to shape us into Jesus' image. It's in his name we pray.